this one up. Testing. That's better. All glory to our Savior, Lord Jesus. Um, it is such a privilege to stand before you this, uh, this morning, family. Um, I always say when I come up here, you know, this, they say two of the biggest things in life, two of the biggest fears is public speaking and death. And public speaking in the Word of God makes it so much more heavier because the Bible says that even teachers will be judged more harshly. So it's always a weight standing here, but it is such a pleasure and a joy to bring God's Word because you get to speak about the goodness of God. You get to touch on the joys and the blessings of the Word of God, and it's a pleasure. And I feel somehow that God used Pastor Bevan to set me up, test me. I don't know what it was, but Bevan had asked me a few weeks back, would you mind preaching on the 19th? And I said, sure, no problem. Forgetting that I have a baby on the way. <laughs> Forgetting that babies don't sleep much at night. Forgetting that we have stage six load shedding. And despite all of this, um, as I was trying to translate my notes from my laptop onto my book, the message comes up, stage six kicking in soon. And I'm frantically trying to write out my notes. My laptop dies. The emergency lights uh, die, the lights eventually come back on, baby wakes up, and the lack of sleep kicks in. And now I understand, Bevan, when you come up here every week and say, if you got more than four hours of sleep, <laughs> give me an amen. So, but I am grateful, I am thankful that I can stand here. It is a privilege, it is a privilege to share God's word, of, uh, God's word with you. So, um, family, this, uh, today we are closing off the book of Daniel. And it somehow feels, Bevan and I were chatting, and it, it feels like we could spend an entire year in the book. You know, when you open up, and for those of us who have been reading the book of Daniel, you understand how dense and how thick the book of Daniel is with prophecy, with history, just with, with just the gospel message being central in there. So I could have gotten up here and preached a 10-week sermon on, on just Daniel 7, but I'm going to spare you. I'm going to just... Uh, take just a few minutes of your time. So today, just to look back, um, Bevan has shared a series on uh, Daniel 1 and Daniel 2. Um, and last week, we had gotten to look at Daniel 2. And Daniel 2, if you were to look at it, uh, if you were to just recap, Daniel 2 gave us a picture of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the four different earths. So it is a statue and the four different metals that made up the statue, which represents the four nations that would impact the nation of Israel up until the coming of Christ. You saw a rock carved out with, the, with hands that weren't made from, from man, struck the, the, the image, and then became a mountain. And that is uh, foreshadowing the kingdom of God uh, at the second coming of Christ. So we fast forward to the book of Daniel, uh, to, to, to Daniel chapter 7. Now, as Bevan had said earlier, what is text without context? Just to give you some context into the book of Daniel, um, and especially Daniel chapter 7. The vision came to Daniel 10 years before Cyrus the Persian defeated the Median king. So if you understand the vision, it was Babylon, then you had Medo-Persia, which was two, two nations, and then you had the Mesopotamians, which was the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and thereafter you had the Roman Empire, and then you had the, the, the ten toes of clay. So you find that this vision came 10 years before Babylon was defeated by Cyrus. You find that Cyrus would then defeat Babylon 
And um, the context of the book also is that Daniel chapter 1 to 6 is more historical. You find a lot of history, it talks about the kings, it talks about the nations. And when we get to Daniel chapter 7, it's like the hinge of a door, which joins the first six, uh, six chapters, and you have Daniel chapter 7, and then you have the rest of the book, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Now you find that in the rest of the book of Daniel, it deals with eschatology. Now eschatology is a very fancy word for end times. It is death, judgment, and end times. That is the, the narrative of the last part of Daniel. So we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 7, which is the hinge, which talks about something very similar to Daniel chapter 2, which is why I bring that up. So if we were just to do a quick contrast of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, you find two kingdoms in both chapters. You find a vision coming to Daniel in chapter 7 and a vision coming to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, it's sort of a neutral vision that's given, um, and it's meant for both believers and unbelievers. You find that it talks about nations very, very generically. And, uh, you know, little detail is given about the Messiah who comes to bring judgment. You find the rock in, in Daniel chapter 2, but not much detail in terms of who is the Son of Man or who is this rock and what is the kingdom. Uh, also, it portrays the splendor of the four kingdoms, especially Babylon. And something that maybe God had foresight enough to, to do was to give Daniel or to give Nebuchadnezzar the vision. You find the head of gold and even told Nebuchadnezzar, King, you are the head of gold. Why would he have done that and give a different vision in chapter 7? Was that he could get favor from Nebuchadnezzar because you are the king. And what happened after that? He got promoted to prime minister, to second in charge. So God had planned and ordained that the vision would be different. So you find the splendor, the glory of, of these kingdoms. Gold, silver, bronze. You know, you find all these metals and precious metals. But when we fast forward to Daniel chapter 7, we get a very different picture to these four kingdoms. So firstly, the vision was given to Daniel alone. He said, I, Daniel, kept this vision to myself. He didn't, uh, it troubled him, it made Daniel sick to his stomach even, that he couldn't sleep, he fasted for three weeks. You know, it troubled Daniel so, so heavily. It was also intended for the saints, whereas the first vision was intended for believers and unbelievers. This vision was specifically intended for the saints. It also reveals the sinister nature of these, these, these different empires where we have gold, silver, bronze. It speaks about the glory of these kingdoms. The four, the, the four beasts or the four uh, nations, this is to display the nature of these, four, of these four nations. It's also a fuller representation of the Messiah. You have a full detail of the Messiah in here and also uh, more detail of the establishment of God's kingdom. Much more detail. So we find this is a much more detailed vision given to Daniel for the saints and uh, also it depicts warfare against the saints and also detail of God's kingdom to give us the saints greater faith and hope as we await for God's final victory and that is the purpose of these two visions you find Daniel chapter 2 Daniel chapter 7 now as we go into Daniel chapter 7 we're going to read that I just wanted to give some context so we understand where we are in the text here Daniel gets to see the entire history of the salvation of mankind from the time that he was there up until the very last breath that mankind will take until the judgment comes. And these are a couple of the themes that we find in Daniel. So you know when we read books, we always look at the themes of love, of revenge, of uh, whatever it might be. The themes of Daniel are God's governance of history, that God is in control of every event that happens. 
You know, it's often said that even your boss was placed there by God. The very boss that you despise is placed there by God. The president that we have is placed there by God. We forget and we think that we voted people into power, but we forget that God is sovereign. And this is the first theme of the book of Daniel, that God governs history. And we'll see that in, in the book. Also, the other theme is the eschatological kingdom of God, the end time vision of the kingdom of God. We also see another theme is the promise of the Messiah. We see that from the first prophecy of Christ where you will, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head, speaking of the Messiah coming and having victory over sin and death. And we see the promised Messiah being fulfilled in this vision that God always had this plan to bring the Messiah to save us. And that's one of the major themes. And also one of the major themes is God's protection through the darkest hours of persecution. God never promises that he'll take us out of persecution. Very, very different in scripture. God promises persecution. He says, those who bear my name will suffer persecution. Those who carry the cross will suffer persecution, but he promises us. And we get this vision throughout history. Sometimes us as people, we view the span of history, the thousands of years in, this, in the time that we've been here. The world started when I got here and it's gonna end when I leave. But God views history from outside of time. And he views history in this particular frame that He's got a plan of salvation and he will help his people through persecution. God wants us to suffer because suffering brings forth character as we understand the scripture says. So God, those are the major themes of the book of Daniel. That is the background, that is the foreshadowing and that is what sits in the background speaking to this. Now, just a little bit more of con more context here is that biblical interpretation, when we're looking at scripture, we're looking at the book of Daniel. So sometimes we will read and reading the book of Daniel can be a very confusing book. And I'll go into some of the very confusing stuff and try and explain it as best as I can. But Daniel talks about beasts with horns and teeth and, and uh, ocean stirring up and, and, and uh, prophecy going over weeks and months and 69 times 2. And it's all of this very confusing prophecy if you go and read Daniel chapter 7. But when we're understanding the interpretation of Scripture, we have to look at it from two different ways. There's two ways that we can interpret Scripture. And we have... Two methods, and the first method, method of interpreting scripture is expository. Expository, which means just expounding on the text, taking a particular text and expounding on it. Right? So you take a particular, um, you take Psalm verse 1, verse 1, and you, you expound and you, you explain it in its own context. Right? And that is the literal, historical, grammatical explanation of the, of the, the particular text. The second way that we can look at it is textual teaching. So we can also stay in the text. But what we must understand is that the Bible has a pan panoramic view. You understand what a panorama is? It's the full view, right? You've got the full view of the entire Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through to Revelation. Now, when we're reading a particular text, that's why it's hard for me to go through Daniel 7 in isolation. That would be textual teaching. I would teach from Daniel chapter 7, and that would be it, right? We read about the beasts, we read about the coming kingdom of God, and that's it. But it's hard to read a particular piece of uh, scripture like Daniel chapter 7 and just stay there. So what we would look at is expository type of teaching where we would take, if you want to look at it from two views, think of an upside down pyramid and think of that as the text is in the middle, right? So you've got an upside down triangle and you've got another triangle facing upwards and the text is in the middle. You've got the weight of the entire Bible, 31,000 plus scriptures speaking to this particular passage. And you've also got the foundation of 31,000 plus scriptures supporting this one. So you cannot look at scripture in isolation 
as Bevan had said, text without context. So we need to understand when we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, God had spoken 31,000 times about this, that we'll find that there's so much context to Daniel chapter 7 that we cannot read it in isolation. So we've got to look at Matthew 24. Christ is preaching a sermon about the end times, and we're very familiar about it. And he says before, they said, Lord, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming? You know, what, what do we look out for when you're coming again? And before he gave them about the earthquakes and the wars and the rumors of wars and all of the things that we're going to see, the birth pains, as my wife had experienced. Before we get to see all of that, he says, careful, lest you be deceived. Deception precedes all of the signs. That is, the signs of the end times, the eschatological view is that deception. And what does 2nd Timothy say? It says that doctrines of demons. I always think that in the end times, you know, as a child, you have a very vivid imagination that there'll be demons at the pulpit preaching to people and they'll be, amen. But no, Bible says test the spirits because spirits speak through people. Holy Spirit speaks through men of God. Spirits of deception speak through false prophets. So we've got to test, we've got to know this book. If we do not know this book, how easy is it to be deceived? Uh, Bevan always uses the example is that a bucket of milk with one drop of poison, what does it become? Poison. The entire bucket is contaminated. Yeah. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You put a little bit of yeast in dough and that entire thing is, is contaminated. That is when you don't know the word of God. So deception will be the first thing. It will be so great in the last day. So great that it said, if possible, the most elect will be deceived. Even the pastors that we admire and look up to, even the most uh, anointed and appointed men of God, might be deceived because the deception is so great and that's why you see the world sliding so quickly into deception where we don't know what what a man is what a woman is it's offensive you will lose your job for saying that somebody is what they feel that they're not for having feelings towards something becomes reality and truth becomes subjective it's your truth it's not the truth this is the truth and everything is supported on the foundation of 31,000 plus scriptures that supports so that's why i'm saying is that expository way of teaching daniel chapter 7 has to be looked at here because if you look at in isolation as as jesus even said now jesus quoted the, uh, the book of daniel daniel was jesus's favorite preacher was favorite prophet he authenticated the book of daniel when he quoted him and he says as the prophet daniel said and he spoke about the the abomination that causes desolation you'll find that in in the book of daniel you'll find him quoting him so much even you find 81 times that he called himself the son of man and that's the title of the sermon today is the two sons the son of man and the son of perdition you've got two sons that are mentioned in this particular passage of scripture so daniel chapter 7 is so vast and so broad and it's difficult to try and squeeze it in to one message but i will do my best to try and do it justice so when we're understanding this different pyramids and understanding the, the text in the middle Daniel 7 uh, we've got to just understand that you know God has immensely spoken about this topic immensely um, you find that one of the titles of the Antichrist uh, one of the titles of the son of perdition is the Antichrist and he's spoken about 34 times he's got 34 titles you'll find him throughout the Bible the king of Tyre the king of Persia the Antichrist you'll find him you know, the one standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation. He's calling Second Thessalonians 2, the man of sin and the man of lawlessness. You find him call, called the son of perdition. He's called the Antichrist. He's the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 and 13, and it goes on and on. When scripture gives so much focus 
to one person, we've got to pay attention. It's not to give him glory, but to understand who he is and why he's coming. So Daniel chapter 7 talks about him. Talks about him in detail. So let us turn to Daniel chapter 7, that I'm not just talking my own story, but you will get to see what scripture says. And I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy passage, but we're going to read from, let's read from verse 1, and we'll read up to verse 14. Just if I can get an amen while we are there. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and vision in his head while in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on its side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard and had um, on its back four wings on, uh, of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in a night vision and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, its huge iron teeth, its devouring, uh, it was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue at feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it and it had ten horns and I was considering these horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots and there in this horn were eyes like a man, eyes like the eyes of a man and speaking pompous words, a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancients of days were seated. His garment was white as snow. His hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated and the books were opened. I watched be uh, then because the sound of, a, of pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body devoured destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. I was watching in a night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. Now, there was a very lengthy passage, but this is the, the central theme and the central vision of the message. So I just want us to understand. Now, when we're looking at that, something that's, that jumps out for you. First, we see the vision right of the four beasts coming out of the sea stirred up by the four winds. Now, if you look in the original language, in the Aramaic, you'll find the word wind has the natural meaning wind, 
and the secondary meaning is spirit. So you find God's sovereignty again displayed there that angels are charged in the affairs of men, nations, the affairs. Uh, you'll find that Babylon was conquered, angels intervening. You find that the Medo-Persian Empire falling, angels intervening. So the angels, the four winds coming from heaven are four angels and you find that the great sea, God is only concerned with one sea really in scripture and that is the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean world is the center for God, Jerusalem is the seat. So you find that all the events that unfold in the Bible are centered around the Mediterranean and around that sea. So it doesn't literally mean the Mediterranean Sea, but that world around Israel, around Rome, around uh, Iraq. Because Babylon, if, uh, if you were to understand where Babylon is, Babylon is a few miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. It is that vicinity that God is concerned about. So what I want us to look at here is that when you look at this particular passage that we read, you find the four pieces. And then you find the little hall coming out. And from verse 7, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. That is focus on the Antichrist. So you find the camera. If there was a cameraman, focus on the Antichrist. You find that uh, passage of scripture. And then you find it focus on heaven again. It says that I, I saw the ancients of days seated on the throne and thousands upon thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands upon ten thousands stood before him the courts were seated and the books were opened now this is also really important to understand is that God is in control God is just and one day God is going to judge and it says the books are open so I had mentioned this in youth the other day but it is, it is sobering to all of us is that every desire every intent every thought everything that you've ever done is recorded in the books of heaven and this is what it's saying is that all these books are open everything that you've thought Everything that you've done, every ill will, every single detail is recorded and it says the books were opened and God judges. God is sovereign over everything. God is in control. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. Satan does not have the authority and the control that we think that he does. God is in control and this is what the scripture is saying. So it focuses the camera on the Antichrist. Then focuses on the throne of heaven with millions and millions and millions ministering to him. And then we go back down to the Antichrist. And I watch, and then the sound of the pompous words, the horn was speaking. And I watched him as he was slain, that we see God claiming victory over the Antichrist. And then we focus back on Christ again. He says that he was presented before the ancients of days. He was given a kingdom. He is coming in the clouds. All of these brilliant things that are going to happen. And this is the entire history of mankind from the day of Daniel up until the judgment that God is telling us in this passage of scripture that we find this focal point and that's why it's giving 50% here 50% there you know you're getting shared view you, if you're watching an episode you're watching one character you're watching next character and this is what the Bible is trying to show us here is ultimately Christ is in control you want further evidence go to the book of Job Job was present uh, Job was presented presented before Satan he said have you considered my servant Job and he said Satan where have you come and he's like I'm roaming my real estate I'm doing my thing pompous speaking brashly you can sense the tone even there he's like yeah I've been doing my thing but he had to present himself the demonic hordes had to present themselves before God because Satan can do nothing outside of God allowing him to do it God is in control. If we're thinking that our lives are going terribly wrong, Satan's ravaging us. No, something like Bevan had said a couple of weeks ago is that God allows persecution. God allows us to go through things because of his purpose. Job didn't understand why. 
but we find at the end it's to give God glory. It's all for God's glory. God is concerned about His glory and His glory alone. And that is what God is teaching us in this vision here. So, um, so God wanted us to see that horrible things are going to go on continually in this earth. And worse things are yet to come. So we look at this world and you know that's why I feel that prophecy also spoke to me Zoe this morning is that we are all heavy. We are all weighed down because of things that are happening. And things are going to continue to get worse. Uh, the price of things. Um, we saw this earthquake in Syria. We find, you know, there's so much things are happening, and that's prophecy fulfilling earthquakes in diverse places. Um, there's, I saw Madagascar, there's a tornado, and all of these type of things that things are happening more frequently, like birth pains. And I said I experienced it that it's the contractions get closer and closer and closer until the, the time of, of birth. And that's the birth of the kingdom of God. And that's why he gave us such a vivid picture of it that when you experience it, you realize. There's the one thing in my mind is like, gosh, this is what the end is going to be like. It's contractions like I'm feeling one now every hour and then it's going every five minutes and then yeah. it's every minute yeah. and then you give birth. And that is what the kingdom of Christ will come. It comes with, with pains. God wants us to see that things won't get better. Things aren't going to gradually get better and we'll have the model high crown. We'll preach the gospel to the end of the world and everyone will be saved and we live happily ever after. No, this earth is going to suffer violence and that's what the vision is teaching us here but it also teaches us that God is still on the throne. And Jesus is coming back to right every wrong that has ever been done. So, just some characteristics that we will look at. I want to compare the son of perdition and the son of man. So, firstly, we need to understand that the son of perdition, the Antichrist, Satan empowers him. Like the Holy Spirit empowered, God empowered his son to do his work. It is a counterfeit. He is a counterfeit Christ who comes to, to feed the need of the people itself. Um, I had seen one of Pastor Israel Piri's messages that he'll be preaching soon, and it said, you know, seven bowls, seven this, seven this in Revelation, and zero repentance. You find that God does all of this, and mankind chooses the Antichrist. It says that the, the, he caused the world to worship him. Like you would, he doesn't deceive them, he causes them to worship him. It's like people willingly worship him. And you've got to understand why. Because he comes with such great deception. And we understand also that God gives Satan unrestrained power to empower this man. We find in Daniel 7 verse 8, you know, he's a little horn. So he'll be the greatest power ever. Uh, we, we think we've seen power, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great. No, this will be the greatest power ever. Uh, a mouth spinky pompous word, he'll be the greatest persecutor ever. We've seen Roman emperors, if you go study church history, you see Emperor Trajan, Domi uh, Domitian, all of these who literally almost wiped out Christianity. We're going to see worse times than that because he'll be the greatest persecutor of Christianity ever. Daniel 7.21, you know, he'll make war on the saints. He'll be the greatest warrior ever. You know, we, we find that where um, maybe Genghis Khan failed or we find Nimrod failed or, you know, um, Adolf Hitler might have underestimated the Americans and the English. We find that he would be even greater than all of these military warlords. He'll be the greatest warrior ever. And uh, in Daniel 7.25, he says that he twists history, morality, changes laws. He'll be the greatest atheist ever. We find this, these are the characteristics of this man. And I think that when looking at this, we mustn't always look at it from one dimension. Another dimension of looking at it is that he can be an example to us. This is what happens when an average normal person is totally surrendered to someone. He is totally sur to surrendered to the power of Satan and he is able to, 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 to dominate the world where everyone else failed. Genghis Khan failed. 
Alexander the Great failed, all of these different military powers failed to dominate the world. He deceives the entire world. The Holy Spirit gives offers us the same. Each and every one of us seated here today have the ability, have the power, have the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. But because we restrain the Holy Spirit so much, if we don't allow him to work through us, it's like a glove. If you were to think of yourself as a glove and God as the hand, some of us like God in gloves. Now, I, I, I don't really go and talk to those type of people or, hey Lord, it's raining outside, I can't go to church or I can't, I can't, I can't. That is the type of gloves that we are about. Can you imagine what a totally unfettered life? The amount of power that God will allow us. You find men like D.L. Moody, the Wesley brothers, Charles Spurgeon. You find men, generals of the faith, who did tremendous works. The Apostle Paul who did turn the world upside down because they lived a life that was totally surrendered to God. So he, let him be an example to us that imagine what a life totally surrendered to God can achieve if one average normal human being can be totally empowered by, by the power of Satan. So, a life totally surrendered. There's a man by the name of Charles Thomas Studd. He was a British um, missionary who lived about 1860 to 1931. Now, his father was very wealthy. He had spent uh, years in India. He had spent years in Africa, uh, sort of around Congo. So there's a tribe uh, that he would go and minister to. He spent 20 years of his life ministering to this tribe. Uh, they were pygmy tribes. These were cannibals. They would hunt people. They would eat people and he would he's out of his mind to go and risk his life to go and minister to these people but he spent 20 years doing this and he said something on his deathbed he said only one life it will soon pass only what is done for christ will last that is what a life totally unfettered surrendered to the power of god will do that at his deathbed there were 5,000 people sitting in circles for the last week of his life they sat and never moved they sat there singing hymns to the Savior who this man taught them about, who saved them from their demonic, possessed, cannibalist life. And there were 20,000 more who couldn't even fit around his tent. He came from riches, he came from glory, but he chose a life of servitude. And that is what a life of servitude will do, that you will surrender all. Think of eternity. We think of our heroes as Cristiano Ronaldo and Sylvester Stallone, whoever it is, people are living for now. But men like this, Charles Thomas Studd, who lived forever. He lived for glory. And this is what a life totally surrendered to God will look like. So just some more facts about him is that, um, you know, if you read in Daniel chapter 11, something very interesting that is said there, it says that he will not regard the God of his fathers, which leads some commentators to say that he could be from the area, he could be a Jew, because he does not regard the God of his fathers, or he could be uh, Muslim, or I, I don't want to speculate and I don't want to get caught up with all of the, the semantics of who we might be. I don't think it's for us to go and search, but it gives us clues because he says that he'll come and make a covenant for a time. He, how do you make a covenant with the nation? So uh, that is what he will come and do, but then it continues to say, after you'll not regard the God of his fathers, he says he will not have the desire of a woman. One plus one, Antichrist has a gay agenda. Turn on Netflix, turn on Amazon, turn on Disney, turn on anything. I saw Buzz Lightyear, there's gay scenes in there now. Like you, you find that this has infiltrated every facet of our society, every facet of our society. That they're saying if it continues at the rate that we're going now with people who identify as homosexual, there'll be nobody, no more babies left because we're gonna wipe out straightness. 
the agenda has been pushed from way back and now you find it front and center because the Antichrist will not have the desire of a woman which can imply that he is homosexual, which implies that he has a homosexual agenda. I saw one of the CEOs of Disney saying that she will intentionally put homosexuality in as much things as she can because she is so pro-gay that she will put this into Disney. These are the things that our children are watching. Now, I don't say that to scare anyone, but I'm just saying that we have to be aware of what is happening because as the book of the Epistle of John says, First John says that the Antichrist is coming, but know that the spirit of the Antichrist has been with us. Spirit of the Antichrist. Everything contrary to this, every, everything contrary to the word of God is being challenged. And the first and the last books are the, are the most attacked books of the Bible because the one speaks of Satan's judgment and the one speaks of creation. And you find that Genesis is being persecuted. You find Revelation is being persecuted. The word of God has been persecuted. What is the first thing whenever you see an interview of a Christian person on a radio station, on a news station, where do you stand on the homosexual issue? And that defines whether we listen to you or not. Not to say that sin is sin. Yes, God finds things abominable, but how you answer that question will define how you are perceived and you are cancelled after that. You will be cancelled from work if you have to speak up. We had Gay Pride Week and they were doing all these education things and if you were to say anything how you feel about it, you would potentially lose your job. And that is, the rest. that is the persecution that we face. We don't face knives and swords in this country, but we are facing a persecution for standing on the truth of, a, of the Word of God. The Word of God says it and therefore I believe it. That is what we are challenged with and that's how we're being persecuted. So that is his agenda and that's why we will see this thing being pushed and pushed and pushed where I feel like a woman today, so therefore I'm a woman. I feel like a dog tomorrow, so therefore I am. What you feel determines your worth and what you are. And that is confusion. Satan is the author of confusion that he will send waves and waves and waves of strong delusions into this world that you find countries like America are, are being judged because they are the ones perpet uh, perpetrating this. They cancel the abortion rights and they all went crazy to save a life of a child. Me having seen my child at 0.9 centimeters this big, having a heartbeat, how do you not believe that that is a human being created by God? Not even a grain of rice and you have a heartbeat. And there I realize, but that is the agenda of the Antichrist. He will oppose everything that is holy in the Word of God. We see, we've seen in the Grammys recently that you find gospel artists singing with secular artists because Satan wants his place back. He lost his place as the worship leader in heaven. And he wants his place back. And that's why you will find that being more prevalent, especially in the church. Secularism mixed with the holy. The Old Testament says the holy and the profane mixed together. He despises that. Those woe to those who call good evil and evil good. But I don't want to get caught up on that. That is the agenda of the Antichrist. And when we see it happening, we must not be surprised. This is why God gives us this vision to understand that this is going to happen at the end. All of the kingdoms have come. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, all of them have come. And we are now into the ten toes. The Roman Empire has passed. So when God talks about his history, he always talks about it from the perspective of Jews. You know, when you're looking at this, you think... You know, you watch the movie Apocalypto and you see there's the Aztecs and the Mayans in South America. Why, didn't, why weren't their societies mentioned? Why wasn't Genghis Khan mentioned in the Bible? Why wasn't the Ming Dynasty in China, China mentioned? Why wasn't all these empires, the Zulu Empire, whatever it may be, why weren't they mentioned in the Bible? Because God is concerned about the center of his people through history. Looks, God is very focused through the lens of the Jewish people. Everything that happens to them, every nation that interacted, so you'll find the four nations that oppressed Israel is mentioned and that's why we find that you know God talks 
uh, about human history through the nations that interacted with them. And you find something very interest, interesting. Babylon was the first nation that had conquered Israel, right? Took them into exile because of their sin. And you find Israel only becoming a nation again in 1948 after World War II. Israel never possessed their own land. They were always subject to somebody else. The Medo-Persians took them. The Greeks took them. The Romans took them. Everyone took them up until after World War II, after the persecution. You find that one swing vote, Russia, decided that they would possess the land. And that is fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah. You find that prophecy is always fulfilled when it comes to God. That is the central message that God is telling us. Trust his, trust his prophecy because I said it, therefore shall it pass. I'm not a man that I should lie, nor the son of man that I should repent. This is what God says, that his words are trustworthy and true. He does not change. There's no shadow of turning in him. This is the God that we serve. When he says it, he will do it. And that's why when we read this, we look at history being fulfilled to the T, to the moment exact dates exact times exact years because show me anyone else who can do that show me buddha if you can tell me that show me any hindu god who can do that even islam whatever it might be if any god can come and compete and say he said it and he done it he said it and done it time and time again every single prophecy there's just a few left to be fulfilled and that's the god that we serve and this is why we pay attention to this so when he's talking about history through the lens of jews he's talking about you know the jews brought his word um, you find that the truth the jews uh, bore his son. Um, you know, the Jews, the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles brought the church, the goodness of the church, and the Jews will be instrumental in the final war at the end. And this is the war that the, the Antichrist is going to instigate. So, not to get into too much end times, I don't want to get into arguments about it, but the scripture is quite clear about that. And so, we find that, uh, you know, God sits enthroned as the Almighty. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar about his vision, Four times he says the most high rules, the most high rules, the most high rules, the most high rules. That is something we must not forget that God rules sovereign, sovereign. He is the authority, he is the final say, he is the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He's the ancients of days, he is the author and finisher of our faith. There's nobody more powerful. That's why even Satan wouldn't even try and say, I'll be more powerful than God. He says, I will be like the most high God. I'll try and be like him but i cannot be greater than him because there's nobody greater than god god does not get surprised by anything you think he's surprised by escom's increase and earthquakes and all of these different things in human history god is in control of it god is instigating it god sends persecution it is not satan saying i'm going to do it god allows him god sends it so we must understand that the bible teaches us that god is in control so we understand that you know, the ancients of days always sits in, 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 enthroned in glory. So we must trust him. We must trust him at all. Because when the world is crumbling, when this economy crashes, and when the stock market goes down, when Bitcoin falls on its back, when everything is breaking in this world, where do we turn to? Do we run now looting toilet paper? Or do we turn to prayer? Do we turn to God and, and, and pray? Because there'll be two groups of people, those running to him and those running to holes to hide from his ferocious, ferocious glory. You see that in Revelation, they say, mountains hide us, they're so afraid. This is the glory of God. This is the God that we serve. But, you, so you find that, you know, this is the son of, uh, the son of man. That, uh, you know, Daniel 7, 13, it says, one like the son of man. So, you know, as I said, you know, it's Jesus' favorite title for him. He says 81 times he called himself the son of man. He introduces himself that way. And we see that he'll return one day in glorious power. He will come to right all wrongs. He is the creator and the judge of all things. 
and the Father has given him all power, all glory, all dominion. He's given him this kingdom and this is what is depicted here. Now, um, you know, somebody had asked me this years ago, is like, why do you believe in the Bible? Or why do you believe in God? And I don't know, my, I guess my answer was a bit wishy-washy. Ah, because. You know, you give all variants of that. Ah, oh, because. Ah, because God loves us that he gave his only son. It's like, yeah, so other, other gods can have the same claim. But why? What makes the Bible stand out compared to all of these others? Muhammad, Buddha, Shiva, all of these other gods. What makes him different? And the difference is this. He said it and he done it. That is the difference and what we stand on. So we stand on surety. Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Hosea 11 verse 1, that he will flee to Egypt when they were persecuting him. You'll find uh, Isaiah 9, you'll find that the governments will be in his shoulders and they'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. you find scripture upon scripture of him fulfilling. Bevan just mentioned one now where Jerusalem was, was, was mentioned to be destroyed. Jesus had said, you know, whatever God had said, he fulfilled because God sees the end from the beginning. If any other God can post that, then maybe I'll reconsider this, but nobody has come to the party yet. Nobody. So when he talks about this last piece of the judgment of the Antichrist, no matter what the world goes through, when he talks about eschatology, end times, when he talks about judgments and opening books, we should be afraid, but we should also stand in reverence that God has promised us that he'll be with us through persecution. He'll be with us even in the smallest of persecutions at your workplace, your troubles, your cupboards are empty. He'll be with you in a trouble in your marriage. He'll be with you through it all. Through it all, we've learned to trust in Jesus. We've learned to trust in God through it all. And every time you trust Him, He proves Himself. And every time you trust Him, He proves Himself. And my wife and I have a saying now, we're saying if we don't trust Him now, you know, because He's come through for us so much, so much, time and time and time and time and time again, we said, Lord, please, we need, and He's done. Lord, we need, and He's done. Lord, we need, and He's done. By the virtue of having a child, I'm, I'm going to be 40 now, and I've waited a very long time. I feel like Abraham. And I'm standing here and saying, Lord, you've done this because I've desired a child for the longest time, but refused to compromise, and God has blessed me. How can I doubt him now? So God has said, said it, and he's fulfilled it, and he's shown us that all of these beasts were judged, and there's one yet to come, the little one, that Antichrist, who's going to come, and he's going to challenge. And I just want us to look at very one last thing before, before I close. Um, in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 24. So you can turn there for me very quickly. And I just want us to look at one prophecy which I feel that is quite key and pivotal to understanding the point that I'm trying to make here. So if I can get one amen. amen. Uh, thank you. Uh, Daniel 9, 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. And here's a list of what is going to happen. To finish the transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for inquiry, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to amount and to anoint the Most Holy One. And then it goes on to say, Know therefore and understand that from the beginning, uh, from the going forth of the command to restore and build, and build Jerusalem until the Messiah Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall uh, even in troublesome times. Now, may sound very confusing, but this is a simplified version. There's a prophecy Daniel has given to say that in 70 weeks, these things will come to pass. Now, 
70 weeks would have probably been a long time after Daniel writes. It would have been five something BC. But no, when we're looking at what that week means, it's not an actual week, Monday to Sunday. Uh, it comes from the, comes from the uh, I think it's Hebrew or this might be Greek but, uh, or Aramaic, but it's uh, the word Shebuim. Um, so Shebuim just means sevens. Remember, I always say that God speaks in heptad sevens. God always uses seven. Seven days he created the world, seven bowls, seven harps, seven, seven, seven. And the word seven, or the word Shebuim is seven. So he's basically saying 70 times seven years. Now, if you were to do some maths, I were to get a calculator out for this because I wasn't very adept in mathematics, but 70 times 7 equals 490. So what he's saying that 490 years will be the time that these things will be complete. The finish, finishing of transgressions, to make the end of all sins, the reconciliation of iniquity, uh, everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecies and to note the most holy one. Now, you would go and look at the time that it says, it says that from this, mark this moment, that from when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, that's when the timer will start. You press the timer to start. If you were to look at the book of Ezra, and you don't have to turn there, I can just reference you because it's quite a bit of reading. But in the book of Ezra, Ezra was one of those um, exiles who went back to Jerusalem and basically says, um, uh, Cyrus the king. And if you were to read the first chapter, it says Cyrus the king made a decree that they would go back because he says the Lord God said that we need to go and rebuild Jerusalem and he sent them back to go and rebuild Jerusalem. There were four more decrees and if you count from the fourth decree under the rule of Artaxerxes of Persia, you would count 483 years. 483 years from that decree. What, was, what happened 483 years after that decree? Christ walks into Jerusalem. They drew palms at his feet and said, Hosanna, Hosanna. He was later crucified, fulfilling everything that was mentioned in this prophecy. Everything, finishing our transgressions, making the end of our sins, reconciling us um, in everlasting righteousness. He sealed up the prophecies in, in Revelation and he anointed the Most Holy One. But 483 taken from 490 leaves you at seven still. There's still seven. So there's one more week left. And that seven years you find in Revelation where it says the Antichrist will make a covenant with the people for a time, for a week. And in the middle of that, he would change his true colors. He would make a covenant with Israel because Israel is the center of God's universe. The center of his affection, the center of his love. And he'll make a covenant with Israel and turn on them. And he will stop the worship in Israel. It says that he'll cause the abomination of desolation. That will be worshiping himself. Standing in the place of God, speaking pompous words. That's why it says the horn came out speaking pompous words. Speaking like he's God, standing as if he's God. And that's the abomination of that causes desolation in the middle of those. So there'll be a time of trouble that is coming. And that is the, the plan of the Antichrist. But this shows you, this shows you. And some of you may be, may be scared, may be fearful of all of this. But what God is saying here is that if you look at their prophecy, he's saying, God is saying what I say I will do. And he said he will save his people. He will come back for his people. He would, we would, as the scriptures I had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and they are saved. We hide in him like the ark. In the ark, Noah and his family ran into him and they were saved. Just like that, we ran into Christ. So we stay close to Christ. We trust in him because his words are true. And that is what Daniel 7, in essence, if I were to condense it down to the, the lowest form, is saying, is that there are difficult times coming, yes. We are going through difficult times now, but there are more difficult times coming. But what we can be sure of 
is that God will be there for those who trust in Him. Those who trust in Him will never be disappointed. Never. God has never lied. Never will He ever lie. God is not a liar, nor the Son of Man that He should repent. We can trust every single word of this 31,000 plus scriptures which testify to Him. Christ is the center of everything in the Bible. You would read the first scripture to the last. Uh, Jay Israel, who was, uh, who was uh, the, the bishop, uh, bishop in England uh, about 150 years ago, and he says that if you read in the Bible and you don't find Christ as like the man who studies the solar system and doesn't find the sun, which is the center of it all. So if you read the Bible and you don't find Christ, it's no wonder you find the Bible a dull book. Because Christ is the center of it all. We sang you are worthy of it all. From you are all things. And to you are all things. And that's why He deserves the glory. Christ is the center of all. Let Him be the center of your life. And let Him, be the, let him lead your life. Trust Him with all. You will not be disappointed. Some trust in horses. Some in chariots. But me and my house, we will trust the Lord. So that is my encouragement this morning. Um, if I can just ask uh, my brother Bevan to come and close in prayer for us. Thank you very much. Bye.